Welcome back to Nobody's Everyone. Rupesh is here again. I have a wonderful guest today, which I'm excited, who I'm excited to talk to, Kelsey Walker, founder of From the Green Desk. Kelsey, welcome to To Nobody's. Really appreciate having you, especially on a Sunday morning. I know that's not always a great time to to record, and especially a topic that um, I'm keen to learn more about and might be sensitive for a lot of folks. Uh, but just, I think it's absolutely something that I. I think we want to talk about. So thank you for joining Two Nobodies today and look forward to our conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And so you're, I think you said you're, when I read your bio, you were, grew up in Kansas City. Is that right? And now you're in Chicago. Is that right? So I spent the first 10 years of my life in Kansas City and then the second okay. eight or so in Chicago. And then I okay. moved back to Kansas City a couple of years ago. Okay. And so what's, what is, I've never been to Kansas City. What is Kansas City like? Um, it's a very spread out uh, metropolitan. It's not like okay. a Chicago where everything's very vertical and you see skyscrapers. Right. There's only a couple of really right. tall buildings and then everything else is spread out, kind of like St. Louis is. Um, but lots of arts, lots of philanthropy, and just an overall um, wonderful place to be in. It's spread across two states, so we border both Missouri and Kansas with the Kansas City area. Okay. Yeah, I always got confused with, with that because I, I think at first glance you think Kansas City is a part of Kansas, but it's part of Missouri. Yep. Um, yeah, so that's and so your family they grew up in the south then is that where you Yep. for the most part or Yep. yep. Most of our families here um every we had kind of transplanted up to Chicago for my dad's job when I was growing up. So everybody came back to Kansas though in the last few okay. years. So um and to Missouri. So we're we're all here now. Nice. And so <laughs> and then founder of the from the green desk I want to hear about that story, but lead me to, you know, just when that started, that, when that point started to happen, but also I'm curious about just what did you, what did you do for school or what was, what was that like kind of just getting to that point of becoming the founder from the Green Desk? Yeah, absolutely. So I went to school at Kansas State University. Um, yeah, after living in Chicago, I decided I wanted to be closer to home, which was still yeah. about three hours away. So I had a good buffer um, to do some growing and things like that. Um, I actually started, uh, studied wildlife biology when I was in college uh, because okay. I did uh, medical search and rescue working New Mexico summers. So mm. um, a very diverse uh, kind of thing. And what I found while I was working those those jobs and studying my major is I really loved the nonprofit world and the nonprofit sector. So mm. uh, after I graduated, I started working for the Boy Scouts immediately, and then really just fell in love with you know philanthropy and 
fundraising and getting volunteers involved and getting people involved in um, nonprofits as a whole. I've worked for the Y, I've worked for the Kauffman Foundation, um, a little bit of everybody, and really fell in love with writing and grant writing. And mm. so it, my career has just kind of progressed over the last 12 years to becoming this nonprofit founder. And in between there, so in 2021, I wrote my first book, called Face Everything and Rise. It is my uh, memoir about the loss of our daughter, Hope. Um, at mm. 17 weeks pregnant, we found out we had osteo, she had osteogenesis imperfecta type two, which is the lethal version of brittle bone disease. So okay. all of the bones in her body were broken at 90 degree angles. Her ribs were breaking in on her heart and her lungs, and my husband and I made the difficult decision to have an abortion at 18 weeks um, because her she was not having a good quality of life, and I was also my life was being threatened by her condition as well. Mm. Um, so we made that difficult choice, and the memoir details out what happened during the procedure. The mental health and post-traumatic stress I just developed from um, the laws that caused me to be traumatized by the procedure. So some of the things that happened during the procedure were um, they asked me six times if I wanted to go through with it. And that is required by law, by Kansas law. Um, okay. They also gave, because they're not in a full hospital they're in a clinic they can't knock you out all the way with an anesthesiologist during the procedure um okay and so they gave me something called midazolam which is supposed to help you forget it, the procedure and make you feel sleepy um, but the thing is every time i fell asleep i would stop breathing so they had to keep waking me up so i remember everything from the procedure and on top of that, um, in, again, that's part of the law is it can't be in a hospital or the hospital will lose funding. Um, mm. So um, another piece of it was that my husband was not allowed to be in the room with me during the last leg of that procedure. What? Yeah. So I didn't was not able to have well, during the most the hardest part of it where they were actually separating me from from our daughter, Hope. Um, he was not allowed to be in the room with me. Um, and you know, it's not the fault of the caregivers. They were doing everything that they could and they were very compassionate right. the whole time. One of the nurses held my hand the whole time and like kept eye contact with me, but you know, it just, it's not the same as having your loved one there with you. Um, of course. so, uh, Face Everything and Rise is about that. And then what I, you know, it took years and years of therapy and, you know, finding support to really get back on my feet again. And finally, I started EMDR therapy in 2021. Mm. And it's a specialized therapy for post-traumatic stress. Right. And it made just a world of difference. And it made me strong enough that I could go to uh, the 
women's march in Kansas City in October of 2021. So at this point, I had already been writing my book for about four or five months. Amazon mm -hmm. had reached out to me and said, hey, we'll publish your book. And mm. I was like, okay, but I, I don't have an ending yet. And they said, we'll, fi we'll help you figure it out, <laughs> and, which was pretty cool. Um, so I went to the Women's March and I carried a sign um, that said, you know, my, my baby was suffering and dying and I would have died. You know, read the truth. And I had built a website surrounding my story. And at the time, I was just going to start a, a blog um, called From the Green Desk. Right. And when I went to the march and carried the sign, you know, I was scared because my husband had to be at a football game for our son. So he okay. couldn't be there with me. Um, okay. <laughs> I was by myself. But what right. I found was that multiple women, you know, when they saw my my sign would, you know, hold their hand to their heart and just ask me questions about it. You know, ask me if that was my story and I'd tell them my story. They'd embrace me, you know, pandemic be damned. They gave me, there were lots of hugs. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, people prayed over me, which was hard for me because I had had a whole experience surrounding churches with this um, piece, which I can get to in a second. Um, mm. But it was an amazing experience and it healed me finding that community and finding these mm. people that were willing to kind of let me be open and share my story with them. Just complete strangers. Yeah, too, complete right? strangers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let me find community in them. And yeah. it healed my heart. And that's how Face, Face Everything and Rise ends, is with them helping me find that strength to rise in, in complete strangers, which is amazing. Um. Thank you for sharing. First of all, yeah. I, I, I knew we were going to get to that story. I just didn't know we were going to get to it so quickly. <laughs> yeah. and, and I feel like I could just, uh, you know, just hand over the mic because I, I, you like it was just um, you got to many points that I was going to ask you about. And, and um, I, you know, I guess I, I must be I must admit, uh, maybe I can be a little vulnerable yeah. in, in, in the way here is that I think for me, if, if we didn't set up this conversation, I don't know if I would have um, the courage or the understanding of even how to approach somebody who had go who's gone through such a loss. Yeah. Right. And so just the way you kind of uh, the way you've expressed it um, just in that short amount of time, uh, I was really nervous to have this conversation. I was telling my wife, I was like, you know, I have these questions set up, yeah. but how is this going to even unfold? Yeah. Right. Like, I, I feel confident in talking about many other things, but this is a, someone I've never met before and they're expressing themselves. And so you've just, I appreciate the way you've just facilitated this and enabled me to be in a safe space to have this conversation because I was frankly very nervous to, <laughs> to see how this would unfold. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot that you said that I want to unpack. There's certainly the stuff around just state laws and, and just the legal system that, didn't seems like I don't know. It sounds like it wasn't very supportive uh, at all, um, and maybe it's not, and still not supportive. And I know that there's some stuff happening in the U.S. when it comes to abortion and and restricting further rights at the state level, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I, I do I do want to unpack that. Um, you know, just the loneliness I imagine that you would have felt 
without having your husband um that that in itself is 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 heartbreaking what year did this happen kelsey 2017 2017 so almost five years ago it'll be five years on september 1st and you have i think i read on your website you have two children now i do would this have been your was this your first or was this um she was in the middle she was in the middle okay and then so after after losing hope what was that process like for you to say that i want another one was that a hard decision for you um that was so ember our youngest she's three now it was a surprise um we you know i was on birth control we didn't weren't intending on getting pregnant again because of the trauma that i was going through but ember um you know prolifically is you know, comes on her own time and <laughs> does her, does what she wants to do. And being pregnant again was very triggering because, um, you know, you, I spent all this time trying to find medications that work to control my post-traumatic stress uh, mm. response and my depression surrounding the loss. And when you're pregnant, you can't be on those medications. Right. So um, being off of those and having, you know, my body was the trigger um, for all of this. And, you know, the fear and the terror surrounding being pregnant again was hard. I think that the biggest saving grace, though, was early on, we had gotten when when we were still pregnant with hope during that 10 days that we had from finding out there was something wrong to having the abortion, we got a amniocentesis done to get genetic material from her and me to find the marker where the OI was. Mm. So that way, you know, when we became pregnant with Ember, we were able to test Ember, um, you know, at 13 weeks or so um, for those genet- that genetic marker and it, fa- it came back clear. And so we were so what a what a time that would have been, I imagine for you, Kelsey, when to just wonder what the test results are going to be. I'm assuming there would have been a ton of fear. And oh, yeah, it was lots of fear, um, lots of nervous pacing (laughs) at the time. Um, But I mean, tears of joy and tears of relief when we found out that she didn't have that genetic marker and found out that she was a girl at that time, too, because that far in advance you can find out um with genetic testing so it was it was a relief and but you know there's still a fear because even at i think it was at 19 weeks i actually or so i actually bled with our daughter ember um it it turned out i had a cyst left over from hope that just broke and so I was bleeding a lot and it was really scary because that is something that when you have kids, they're like, go to the emergency room, you know, there's a chance that you could be losing. And so we went and it turned out it was okay, but it was, it was terrifying. It was just flashbacks, you know, nonstop for, for two days while that was happening. Did you grow up in a family that like what was the what were the views on abortion I guess growing up um was it was it fairly conservative was it very open minded or like what was the yeah what were the views or approach on abortion I guess Yeah so my 
mom is Catholic and my dad is Jewish. So two very different kind of viewpoints, but overall they were very conservative. And so Mm. very early on, I was very rebellious and was very (laughs) um, (laughs) liberal. And when I was young, I didn't, you know, I was very much so pro-choice and really was very much so my body, my choice at the time, not, Mm. but it took until having the procedure to understand what those words really mean. And Mm. while, um, you know, my family was conservative, my parents were the first ones to reach out um, when we found out what was going on with hope. And my mom very much so saw it as a way of saving my life and completely supported us in that decision. Um, We actually kept, other than my parents, we kept the decision that we had to make and the procedure that we had to make from our families until 2021 when my book was coming out. Because on my husband's side, they're incredibly conservative um, and are very much so, um, you know, two of his brothers are pastors. Um, Mm. It was, you know, a very scary, you know, thing. But when we did finally tell them, they were completely supportive because it, it, it's an impossible choice to make. And it was a choice to save my life. And that is, you know, kind of what they've kind of uh, have used to wrap around it to understand it and be supportive around it. So it's been, it's been new, new and interesting to see the way the family, you know, some of, there's a couple of the family members that have read the book and there's a couple that have not, um, Mm. that be, because it's hard, you know, my older sister's read it and she's like, it's really hard to read because you're my sister to see you in that much pain and see everything that really happened. Um, But at the same time, it is very informative because there's so much like propaganda out there. There's so much just garbage that like when I was going in to get the procedure done, I had no idea what to expect because if you try to Google, (laughs) what's a, what's a dilation and evacuation, Um, all kinds of crap comes up. Like you can't, there's no clear cut like web md thing that you can find that tells mm. you what to expect so 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 on, on that what were some things that maybe uh you thought you knew going in but you know was very different yeah um the way that the media kind of reflects abortion is that it's like a quick in quick out kind of thing mm. and that you know it's a minor surgery and that it's like it's very, it's all very downplayed that it's like a, a quick solution kind of thing, mm. but it's an all day affair. Um, you go in at seven thirty in the morning and you're not done until around five, um, wow. because at seven thirty in the morning, you know, after you're fasting all night, which as a pregnant person, it's very hard to fast. Um, you know, you're fasting all night and then you get there at seven thirty in the morning, they check your vitals, they make you go through another ultrasound, which we had mm. already been through a two hour ultrasound with hope days earlier to look at all every like 
view every single right. broken bone. It's like, I did not need to do that again. Um, but well, why, from their standpoint, did they feel like they needed to? The law requires it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The law requires it. Um, so they did it again and, you know, then they start, start the procedure and, you know, if this is a little too graphic, you can cut it out, but they insert bamboo shoots into your cervix and they break okay. your water and then they do that. And you have to wait about four to five hours, um, to wait for labor to be induced and for your body to recognize that. Um, and for us, that meant, you know, my, again, my parents were very supportive and helpful during the procedure. They, um, actually re got us a hotel nearby because we actually lived three hours away from the clinic. Okay. So, and they were worried that, you know, if I have a procedure that I would like throw a clot or something, you know, going back and forth in a day. Yeah. And luckily we had that hotel room because I had to just wait and get, start getting contractions and stuff for four or five so hours. So you're not sitting, you're not in the hospital at this point. Though. No, you're not in the clinic. Okay. You, okay. They, clinic, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They, they have let you go cause they don't have anywhere to put you for four to five hours. Okay. Um, okay. so then you come back and the problem was when I came back, there was another emergency in the other room because mm. what happens when they discharge you from one of these procedures is um, they give you four phone numbers for support. They give you the suicide hotline, the abortion support hotline, which is a lot like the suicide hotline, a psychiatrist in Overland Park, which again, it's three hours away from us. Um, telehealth wasn't really a thing yet, so it wasn't exactly a helpful Mm -hmm. resource for me at the time and then the after hours clinic number because if you go to an emergency room after you have this procedure they won't know how to treat you because mm. they're not practiced in it so you have to really? yeah an emergency room doctor will not know how to treat you after you have a, a D &E. so you have to go back you have to call the after hours number and you have to come back to the clinic so like if you start bleeding crazy or something happens, um, so there was an emergency going on while, when, when I came back and so we had to wait for another hour and, you know, I'm in active labor at this point. Um, you know, it just, it was really hard and then they did the procedure and, you know, they gave me the midazolam so i don't know exactly how long but it was around 4 30 or 5 o'clock when everything got said and done um what was another thing that was interesting that i didn't know to expect or i thought to to expect was the protesters outside of the clinic um i at, at 7 30 in the morning they didn't show up but when we came back they were there but they never got and are to... they just they're just there normally or what, yeah did they okay yeah they're they're normally they're outside of like the the sign where the clinic's at um right. on the road and um i was lucky enough that like my so my husband is six foot five he's a big man and okay. my dad who is 
six foot three, but he was a lineman for K State back in the day. Okay. It was, I had two huge men with me that right. were not going to let anything happen to me. Yeah. So they left us alone for the most part. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I did not, ex- you know, even though people say that they're there, like, I just didn't expect that. What was interesting was that um, I, you know, months and months earlier, I had actually gone to Planned Parenthood to get my IUD removed so that we could conceive hope. And that's when I ran into the protesters at Ernest. And I was like, I'm mm. trying to have a baby at that point. Mm. Um, so it was a weird experience to encounter them again when um, when we were losing her. So the 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 protesting like i mean you know we've tried to refrain from a lot of judgment on our show but it just seems yeah. like a very disrespectful approach right like not even willing to try to understand someone's situation and sit with them a little bit before even if you have really strong views whatever that is right but just yeah. not having any sort of empathy or compassion for people in that moment um and to really be in their face in such a way is 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 very disrespectful it's it's yeah. uh, just horrible to hear that that you experienced that and i mean had you not had um you know two people in your life that physically could protect you there's probably i'm assuming there are a lot of women who walk out of those clinics who probably feel very very vulnerable and afraid to have yeah. to walk through a gauntlet of protesters like how disrespectful and horrible is that yeah absolutely it's you know people don't get abortions because they're, you know, it's an easy solution. They get it because they have no other option. Um, and you know, it's a decision that isn't taken lightly by, by anyone who needs Mm -hmm. this as healthcare. And so for someone to, you know, slam them and be there when it's really a a decision that's between them and their doctor is just, you know, it speaks to their humanity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, hmm. well, uh, and, you know, we had some challenges with churches surrounding, um, speaking of that kind of judgment, yeah. um, surrounding churches when it came to losing hope. Um, Can I ask before you get into that, did you, yeah. do, do, do you and a husband, are you, uh, are you, practicing uh and are you very strong in your faith like what does that look like for you folks so um i am jewish my husband doesn't like we both are kind of more spiritual don't practice a whole lot um but when you're faced with this kind of situation anyone is when anyone's in a foxhole like this you definitely look for for god and that's what we tried to do. Mm. Um, when we got Hope, Hope's ashes back, which was just like a quarter worth of ashes um, back from her, um, I s- called seven different churches to try to get her ashes blessed um, and to try to have a funeral because we couldn't afford like a traditional funeral for her. Um, because I worked for a nonprofit, my husband worked for the school district. It just was not 
the cards for us. So we were hoping that maybe, you know, a church would have mercy on us. And I called seven churches and all seven said no. Because she was a aborted child, they would not respect those wishes. And so that was incredibly painful. And then, you know, when I was looking for support, again, working for a nonprofit, um, you know, needing, I wanted like some kind of support. So I, you know, they told me not to stray off those four phone numbers, but there's only so many times that you can call the suicide hotline. You really need mm -hmm. someone physically there to talk to. And so I found an abortion support group, um, mm -hmm. or at least what I thought was an abortion support group, um, phone number and I called it and this guy was really empathetic and um, told me to come meet him at, at this church with a pastor and so my husband and I did and they let me tell my story and then they got up in my face and told me you know we we might pray for your daughter but you're gonna go to hell for what you did oh my goodness so that kept me for about from looking for any more support or any more help for about two months. I refused to like hmm. go to a psychologist cause I was scared. Um, I refused well, to they're go. Also not, they're also not cheap, right? Yeah. To to they're a, not cheap. Right? Yeah, so, we couldn't yeah. really afford it. Yeah. Um, I, I refused to like reach out to any more churches cause I was like, I'm done being burned. Yep. And so I just sat there night after night with, flashbacks and suffering and depression and it took my husband you know going like we you can't live like this anymore and he found a therapist that was willing to work with us financially mm. um and he reached out to them and got the appointment set up and my first appointment was like 90 minutes long because it just all mm -hmm. came out in a deluge came out. yeah yeah. So, um, you know, it's just been a challenge. And again, it was, you know, you think about churches as this place of hope and healing. And again, it was their, a testament to their humanity or lack thereof mm -hmm. to, to help um, a mother who was grieving a, a great loss. So I still, you know, it took me until two years ago, probably, to start um, doing Jewish holidays with my son again, because mm -hmm. I just felt so separated from God in that Probably felt moments. betrayed, I would assume, too. Yeah, betrayed for yeah. sure. Yeah. So. The, the atrocities and hypocrisy that happens in the name of religion sometimes is beyond me. Like, I think there's so much beauty in, in every religion that there is there's always beauty to yeah. be found but then you know we're in in canada right now i don't know if you've heard but the catholic church um has a very dark history with indigenous peoples here in canada and oh. uh they, they they i think it was last i want to say maybe august or or fall of last year um there was something a, a, a dark history in canada something called the residential schools it's where the catholic church actually took children away from indigenous parents and put them into schools and forced them to, you know, learn the ways of the Catholic church and, and essentially take the, 
the savage out of the Indian child is sort of how they would frame it. It was terrible. But anyway, but but yeah. more has come out of this in that they found unmarked graves under a lot of these residential schools, hundreds and hundreds of children out of all the under all these schools. It's a huge atrocity in the name of the Catholic Church and um, indigenous peoples in Canada. They recently visited Pope Francis. Um, mm -hmm. To, to to seek an apology and Pope Francis did issue an apology and, and um, they're looking for more but I guess that's just not with the Catholic Church that exists in, in all religions you know people people yeah. I, I find that uh, people saying this in the name of a religion and and say that something is right and there's no compassion or empathy behind things that goes against the principles of many of the religions but um, there's such a power dynamic there that they feel that they can just take advantage of people I I'm sorry that you know it's troubling to to hear that, but it's also I'm not surprised to hear that too, which is sad to hear, um, sad to say, I should say. But uh, that's 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 very very troubling that that would have happened. How is the how is the healing for you now? Like, what does that look like for you? What's your what's your take care of yourself kind of routine, or or what does that look like? Yeah. Now, you know, working through EMDR still uh, has been part of the routine. Yeah. Um, and founding from the green desk has been part of the routine as mm. well. Um, because, you know, my whole being for the last 12 years has been giving back to community and working through the nonprofit sector. And that's how I channel my emotions. That's how I channel mm. my, um, the way that I grieve. And they've found that it's another step in grieving is finding meaning. Mm. And so after my encounter with the women's March, um, in, in October of 2021, I realized that, you know, I had women that were reaching out to me that were saying, you know, we didn't have this community either, you know, wouldn't it be great if you could start something to create this a community? And I said, I could do that. <laughs> um, I've worked for nonprofits for so long. How how hard could it be? Yeah. <laughs> um, and there are definitely some hoops that go with um, starting a new nonprofit, but it's nothing that isn't worth the challenge to uh, find, found this nonprofit. And so from the green desk it was founded because I literally worked from a green desk. I wrote the book from the green, from this green <laughs> okay. desk. I don't know if you can see it behind me, but, um, oh, yeah, I can see in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I do the work from this green desk and what it does is we provide individual one-on-one -on -one coaching for, women and folks who have gone through abortions or lost children or lost pregnancies, as well as provide group therapy for mm. women who have gone through these losses. We also um, have a blog and then coming soon, a podcast. I wanted to release it back in March, but um, there's only so much bandwidth that goes, <laughs> you oh. can explore um, at a time. Um, but uh, something else that we're going to also be starting here in the next couple of weeks is narrative meditation. What so, 
so it's something new that I've um, come up with, and basically it's a way of unlocking your layers of your story, whether it's trauma, whether it's loss, and going through the different levels and being able to find the words to write it down mm. and just get your story off of your chest and into the world. And, you know, whether that helps people write a book or that helps people just get it off of their chest. Um, it's a, it's kind of like, you know, narrative therapy in a way, okay. but, um, and, you know, I'm not a licensed therapist, so I can't of course call it therapy. Um, but, uh, you know, I call it narrative meditation because there's a part of it that is you uh, finding a quiet space and exploring this, you know, exploring the trauma as well as uh, exploring the safe places of your mind to get it out on, on paper. Very so, cool. and, and all of the services that I have are free of charge to, to people who need them. So. And so are you just seeking grant funding then, I guess, like, and to, to fund your organization then? Um, yes. So part of it is seeking grant funding. Um, part of it, um, I also have a fundraiser coming up in June. Okay. So yeah, June 11th, uh, myself and two other uh, women-led nonprofits are having a night to empower with her um, in capital letters at the end of Empower. Um, and it's going to be myself and four other um, folks that are going to speak on their uh, stories rela related to reproductive rights, mm. domestic violence, um, as well as um, ending period poverty. Okay. So um, a couple of different topics. Um, there's going to be some uh, food and drink trucks available for folks to um, indulge in for before and during the intermission. And it's going to be a powerful night for, for folks on June 11th. June 11th. Yes. We'll have to make our way to Kansas City on June 11th. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a fun time. Um, you know, it's going to you know, there's going to be some powerful stories and there's yeah. going to be some, um, some good things to be had there. And then the, my last bit of fundraising right now is we're doing the 50 States challenge. Yeah. Um, so what that is, is I am taking my memoir okay. and I got it printed at cost 150 copies <laughs> and I am mailing them to every, Senator, governor, um, the president, the Supreme Court justices, and and sending it to them to rewrite the narrative that they have in their heads surrounding reproductive rights. Right now, the narrative very much so surrounds this kind of slut shaming, like it's loose women going and mm -hmm. you know sleeping around and getting abortions, and that's mm -hmm. just not true. Mm -hmm. um, it's people who need this as healthcare. And uh, my, my point of doing this is not to sell books, it's to get these people who are making these laws to wrap their head around um, reproductive rights as healthcare and how important it is and, and put a face to what they're putting laws around. 
good for you when you're when you're writing when you're writing these envelopes with these books in them and you see some of these senators names and you know they're just probably not gonna like they're probably not gonna open like what is that how does that make you feel or are you just like f it i'm just i'm gonna do this like this is important (laughs) um honestly i feel that you know it is their choice whether to open the open the book or not and it is their choice whether what they make as a decision after they read the book, if they yeah. do. Yeah. And that's a testament to their humanity and the decisions that they're making. So if if they didn't pick up the book because they don't feel that it's valuable enough for their time, that's, again, a testament to their humanity. If they did pick up the book and they're still making these laws and wrapping it around these clinics to constrict, you know, constrict them and and kill them off that is their testament to humanity and yeah. why we should or should not be voting for them to be in place yeah for sure um maybe if you, i don't know if you know much but uh, it, it would be helpful for me i don't know enough about u.s federal law and state laws around abortion like what's the um sort of what what is u.s federal law sort of encompass and how does it touch on on reproductive rights and abortion and, and then versus state laws. Do you, do you have a sense of that? And would you mind kind of explaining that to, to folks who are listening? Yeah. So federally it, the right to an abortion is pr- currently protected, okay. but it's very much so under threat. Um, even in December, um, you know, I got my book published in December because I wanted to make sure that it was out there before the Supreme court went to debate uh, Roe v. Wade again mm-hmm. um, in December, and then they're ongoing debating it right now. Mm. I even got a news alert on my phone today that said what you should do to prepare for a post-Roe life. And I was like, this is, it was so triggering, I had mm. to put my phone down. And so it, while it's okay right now, it's it's under threat. Um, and what we've also found at the state level is, is since the war uh, with Ukraine and Russia started going on, which we should be paying attention to mm-hmm. it. It's mm-hmm. an atrocity. Mm-hmm. But while that's, since that started, there has been four or five states that have overturned reproductive rights in their states. So, Because there's uh, an opportunity to kind of bury it under the news of, of the Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. Okay. Yep. Watch, watch while one hand is doing yep. something yep. and the other hand is going to do something else. Right. So that's been happening um, all across the country. And it's also going to happen in Kansas um, where, um, where I actually had my abortion done. Um, they are trying, it's written into the state constitution that there is a right to that. And they are trying to amend that constitution to take it out. Um and then in, I don't know if you know too much about Texas, but um, Texas has the heartbeat bill that they passed okay. into law um, back in um, November. And it was really because of the heartbeat bill, um, the happenings of the heartbeat bill, as well as the things going on in Mississippi, that I started writing my book because I was so outraged that I was like, I have, I can't keep this in anymore I ha- mm. and it came pouring out of me in six months um from beginning to end of writing this book and um in texas the heartbeat bill means that after six weeks when they de- 
can detect any kind of uh, heart activity in a fetus, they you can no longer have an abortion. And at six weeks, most women don't even know don't that even they're know. pregnant. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what happened in Texas um, recently that came out in our news was there was a woman named Anna who at 18 weeks pregnant, um, her water broke. And she went to the hospital and they, you know, the doctor said, well, you know, you really need the same, this DNA, which is the same procedure that I had, um, because, you know, the baby was malformed, um, and was dying. And because she was in the state of Texas, she couldn't get the procedure that mm-hmm. I had. And because she was in the state of Texas, she had to wait to see if her body recognized it and miscarried and hope that she didn't get an infection that could kill her. Mm -hmm. Because there's other women now that I've been, you know, reaching out and talking to some other women. There's a woman in Egypt who had a missed miscarriage that took six months for her body to recognize that it was miscarrying. And she went into septic shock. And so this woman in Texas, Anna, she, she survived. So that's good. And her body recognized it and, and miscarried, but there was a, there's a real chance that it wouldn't have ended up that way. There's a real threat to women's lives that comes with the laws that they're wrapping around these clinics and starting to, you know, strangle these clinics. And we're seeing a lot of these, like the changes in state laws are happening mostly in like Republican controlled states, would you say? Or Yes. For instance, the state that I'm living in now is, is Missouri. Okay. And they've all but removed abortion from Missouri. And recently they, um, a woman, Republican, actually proposed a law to um, criminalize abortion. So if a woman has an abortion, and this is also happening in Texas, where there is a $10,000 bounty put on someone's head if they find out that they've had an abortion, and it goes on their criminal record. So states have an influence on 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 the criminal code, I guess, because like in Canada, for instance, the criminal code is controlled by the federal government. Provinces, or, uh, provinces here don't have any input on the criminal code, but... In, in the U.S., states have, can have, like, they have their own criminal codes? Yes. Or, okay. Yes. So it's that way for, like, cannabis across the states as right. well okay. yep. and, and things like that. Um, their way of, of um, criminalizing some things versus not is, is controlled in the states as well as at the federal level. So what will this do if, because um, if I'm thinking about my understanding of what the map looks like in the United States, but if, if it is a lot of these Republican-controlled states, that's a lot of the southern states in the U.S. Yeah. What is that going to do for, for women who who like need help and need access to these services? Like, where are they supposed to go? And like you said, like in your case, for instance, which... Um, you said that you, um, after they induced you, you had to wait and you couldn't stay in the clinic. And, and for you, that would have meant three hours, you know, away, but luckily you're able to stay somewhere nearby. 
that's not, I'm assuming that's not always the case for everybody, right? Like I'm assuming access here is at really a threat for a lot of women. Absolutely. It's at risk. It's, you know, it's upsetting, but they started calling Kansas a destination state after Texas fell because people were driving from Texas to Kansas, which is not a short drive. It is eight, 12 hours, you know, to, mm. to Kansas from Texas and, you know, from some of the different cities and it's going to be like that for other states. Um, you know, these long distances, which is not feasible for everyone. So you, you know, is financially, um, medically and, so it's going to be start becoming a life or death situation for some women who are like me, who need it as healthcare to keep, you know, keep themselves from being at risk. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny to me that like the, well, even in, even in Canada, the abortion conversation seems to be creeping up a little bit. Um, it's been, mm -hmm. there was, uh, before our current uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, there was uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and he um, he was he was led the Conservative Party, and he made it very clear that we would not bring up abortion as one of our platform issues, and wouldn't make it a talking point as part of any future federal campaign because Canada has moved on. But yeah. more recently, that's not really the case. There's been this emboldened. Um, voice coming out of you know the very social conservative circles in canada of let's talk about abortion again and you know that it seems like the abortion conversation was always there within the united states but would you say something has changed in the last few years that where it's really um people feel more emboldened or feel more passionate or maybe they have the space to even uh like obviously laws are changing but has something changed i guess over the last few years that has made this conversation more not even conversation that just restricting rights around abortion and reproductive rights is is that um has something changed to to enable that would you say well a lot of it changed with in the last few years with the bringing on our current or our previous president mm. uh donald trump mm there was all, all of a sudden a lot of, you know, to not, to put it in less, less of a brazen way, but <laughs> a lot of boldness yeah. surrounding um, conservative issues and a lot of um, lack of respect for, for women's and reproductive rights. Mm. And so that has been under threat. And then also having, Trump put two more conservative people mm. in the Supreme Court seats that has caused, you know, all of a sudden now there's, you know, that is the majority in the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it has caused a lot more feeling of boldness for the conservative party. And there it's kind of like they see the opportunity so they're going to strike while the iron's hot and you know that's again it's it's hard and it's life-threatening to some people who need this I've, I've heard that 
Trump's one of his biggest legacy items is um, the impact he's had on both the federal and state courts. Like he's really yeah. um, him and and the Republicans and Mitch McConnell have been able to really aggressively change the face of the court system in the United States at at all levels. Um, and so, yeah, that that uh, that doesn't help as well. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And and you know, we thought we would see some relief having a more liberal president come in, but. Mm. He won't even say abortion. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so that's he's... a that's a big thing right now with with a lot of folks that are um, anti or uh, pro choice. I'm not saying getting the things mixed up. Um, that are pro choice right now is he won't even say abortion, and it's mm. like you won't even address it. Um, meanwhile, there's these atrocities happening, and it's just it's hard it's hard to wrap your brain around what what does that what does that mean i guess if just for him to recognize and actually say the words like what does that do it puts you know it's it's like a disease in a body you know it for me i have chronic pain from a car accident i was in when i was a teenager Mm. and it took 15 years almost no 13 years it's been 13 years for them to find a name for the uh the condition that i have Mm -hmm. with chronic pain Mm -hmm. um it's called myofacial trauma Mm. and for there it's for there to be someone willing to put a name and willing to say something out loud, it puts a real face on an issue. If you're not willing to talk about it, then you're just pretending like it's not happening, like it's not Mm. there. But if you're willing to say it out loud, you're recognizing that it it is a real problem. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes that makes complete sense. I, I I was wondering, and I don't know if there's a an answer to this, so I just put out the question: Is there a way of having any kind of balanced conversation with those who feel very strongly who are pro-choice but also pro-life? Like, what is that? What is that balanced? Is there one? Is there a balanced conversation? And then, what does that look like? I would say that balanced conversation comes from people who are pro-choice, not even from people who are pro-choice but pro-life or pro-life. I think it comes from people who have had the procedure speaking out and telling their stories and putting a face Mm. instead of a number to the procedure. Um, you know, whether it's the fact that the majority of women who have an abortion or people who have had an abortion, um, are already parents Mm. when they have an abortion, that puts a a level and a depth to the person who needs it as healthcare. 
I think that the more people who speak out who have had the procedure, the more that you're going to see a balanced conversation with pro-life and pro-choice people. Mm. Because it's not, there's this middle ground that I call pro-option. Okay. That, that is for the life of the mother. <laughs> and that's very much so, you know, a pro-choice way of thinking. But sometimes when, when pro-lifers, or we call them anti-choice now too, talk about abortion, they say that, you know, they make choice sound like it's a pair of shoes that you're mm. choosing. And so I've started calling it pro-option because it's the only option that you have at the time to save your life, to end suffering, to um, make the, the only, or take the only option that you have to make your life better and preserve it. Is there, do you think there's a perception out there from from pro-lifers that the whole thing about choice is that um, that those who are making those choices, it's like an easy one for them that it's, um, Oh, I, you know, I'll just, I'll just abort this, this baby and that'll be in there and move on. Kind of like, do you think that they, they, they perceive it as that, even though in reality, like I, I and I, you spoke to it, you know, in your story, but just to, to actually, when you're in that moment, have to face that decision, right? And even if in your case, right, like um, with you and there is a risk to your life, but there's probably a lot of women who maybe there's not a risk to their life, but they're still doing it for whatever reason. But to actually um, end a child's life when you're in the, when you're in the, the, the trenches of making that decision I can't imagine that any woman would or any person would find that an easy choice to make. And it seems like there's a perception out there that, oh, no, that these people probably made it an easy. It was probably an easy choice for them, even they're pro-choice. And so therefore, they're just going to choose and move on with it. I don't know if you have anything to say to that, but that's just my thinking on that. Yeah, it's definitely the rhetoric that's going around, right, right? is that it's just this this easy, breezy choice and it's just this easy you know easy route that someone can take if they have an unwanted pregnancy and you know it's people who are being raped mm -hmm. it's people who are have instances of incest it's people who are having um you know topical pregnancies you know it's these different people. Yeah. And that's the thing is that they're people who are making the hardest, one of the hardest decisions of their lives. And it's not, it's not some easy breezy thing. And it's not an in and out kind of decision. It's a all day affair. It's a um, you know, even if it's the abortion pill, which you can take earlier on if, you know, if you need it for, for that reason, you know, that's still an all day affair mm -hmm. to 
ha- take the abortion pill and then feel the after effects mm. of it. Nothing is an easy option for an abortion. And I think that people need to understand that and recognize that. Yeah. In those cases that you mentioned, rape, incest, all these other ones, like surely there can be some common ground there, right? Where people can understand that it it was of no choice of the person. You know, I remember, I think it was in, I want to say it was uh, Obama's first uh, election campaign. And I think one of his speeches maybe was at the Democratic Convention or something like that. But I remember him speaking to, to that, that, Surely there could be some common ground on um, those who those women who have been raped and have been impregnated due to incest or whatever. And but it seems like all common sense has gone through the window, um, even on on these basic things. I don't know. Yeah, um, you now have people saying, "Well, the person who raped you's family might want the the child," yeah. and it's like why would I give my child to a family who recognizes rape as something that's okay? <laughs> like, just, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's mind boggling. Mm. The, the new, new and improved excuses to s- strangle out reproductive rights yeah. that they're coming up with. Yeah. It's, it's just, crazy i feel like i've done a lot of sighing in this conversation more than any other (laughs) conversation i've had so my apologies for that um i also feel like i'm not uh coming up with my words today have been like two dollar words and i haven't been coming up with anything sophisticated so anyway but uh you're okay it sometimes there there just are no words and the absence of words can be just as powerful yeah totally you're right um, I wanted to, before we get into, we always ask uh, two questions of our, um, of our guests before we get into that, I just want to get your sense on like, what's, we've talked a little bit about this, but what are some emerging factors or, or issues or things that you're seeing in, in this space? Like, what do you think that people are, is not on people's radars that maybe people need to know about or, um, yeah. Um, this summer, so between May and August, yeah is going to be key for reproductive rights in our country. Okay. Um, there are a ton of elections that are going to um, overturn reproductive rights in different states. Um, so pay attention and register to vote and vote. And, you know, uh, May, there's, I think there's different ones in, in Kentucky, there's, um, you know, and, and in Louisville that's going on right now in August there, it's actually a primary election, like one that people normally don't vote in is where they're sneaking in this bill, um, in Kansas. So pay attention this summer and get registered to vote and keep reproductive rights strong in your area so that, you know, people like me, people that need this, um, as healthcare can, can keep it that way. Yeah. Great. Where can people find your book? On Amazon. Amazon title again. Yep. Uh, face everything and rise. Face everything and rise. Okay. We'll put a link to that in yep. the show notes for sure. 
um, and to from the green desk as well. Uh, are you okay if we move on to the last two questions that we asked our guests, or was there anything else that you wanted yeah. to, to to talk about? Uh, no, um, you know, jump in on that 50 states challenge. Yeah. It costs 30 bucks to sponsor a state to send um, three books to each state's uh, representatives. Um, you know, it's just, yeah, like I said, I'm doing it at cost and at shipping cost. So I can't do it alone, mm. though. It's like $1,500 <laughs> for the whole United States. Yeah. Um, so please please help any way that you can. Um, and we can, I can also give you the link to that. Yeah, as that'd well. be awesome. So that's two senators and a governor. Is that sort of the approach? Yep. Two senators and a governor and then um, the Supreme Court and our president as wow. well. Wonderful. Um, I feel like if you were to tackle the entire Congress, that that might be a little bit much. <laughs> I'm a little much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I recognize my limits. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that is, that is where, where my limit Stage is. Stage <laughs> two, phase two of this, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Phase yeah. two. Okay. Um, all right. So first question that we give to our guests is, is there a five for dinner question, dead or alive? Who are five people that you'd want to have dinner with? I mean, you could have them individually. You could have them collectively. Uh, sometimes we ask if you're going to have a meal, like what the meal would look like, um, if you want to get that into the weeds with it. But um, yeah, any thoughts? Yeah, I would say I'd, I'd love to have dinner with the Obamas okay. to, to just understand their approaches to, um, you know, tackling the world that we're living in right now mm. as people who have, have been there, done that um and ways to tackle it tactfully mm. um i'd love to have dinner with uh the also the um oh goodness they call them the squad yeah. um with our um united states government um which kind of fills up the rest of my <laughs> seats but um <laughs> i'll just like count them as like one or two yeah, people yeah, yeah. um but um I think that the squad would be incredibly impactful and powerful mm. to, to have dinner with. Um, I'd also just, just so for to... people, just so for people's understanding. And I'm pretty sure I understand. Yeah. I know who the squad is, but we're talking about like, there's, I think four or five, uh, pretty progressive members yeah. of the United States Congress. We're talking about AOC and, uh, Oh my goodness. I forget the other three, but is that yeah. that's what we're talking about though? Right. Okay. Yes. 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 Very pro progressive folks that are, um, and they're women that are making a lot of big changes yes. and a lot of differences in our government. Okay. Um, so I'd love to have dinner with them. Um, you know, from a, a fun, um, silly standpoint, I would probably say, um, I'd love to have dinner with, um, goodness, now, like, well, I don't know if it's silly so much, but I love Glennon Doyle and I love Brene Brown yeah. um, because they are making changes to the way that our, um, the way our working sector goes and vulnerability mm -hmm. and um, approaching life and becoming untamed. I'd love to have dinner with those two ladies. That and I think they would just be a really fun 100%. hangout. Like, um, and 
probably my last one would be my grandmother who has passed away. Um, she not only would probably be the one cooking the meal, but um, she, and I miss her cooking, um, she was an incredibly powerful influence in my life. Um, she was what the Kansas, like, there's a part of the Kansas City Chiefs, which is a football yeah. team here, um, American football. Yeah. Um, and they um, have a division called the Red Coders, mm -hmm. and they do philanthropic things out in the community. And so she was a Red Coder and really was very involved in her community. And um, was a huge influence in my life becoming, uh, you know, getting into that nonprofit sector. Yeah. So she would be my, my, my last person that I would have, have dinner with. Yeah. I don't know if she would get along with everybody else at the table, but she would cook a damn good from meal. From her, you mean from like her <laughs> so... political views, you mean? Or... Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. I figured that's what it was because you got a political powerhouse <laughs> of a table. So, um, yeah. yeah. Even including Glennon Doyle, I guess too, but, uh. Yeah. yeah, that's a that, yeah. But... That'd be a cool conversation to be part. Of. Would you think you'd be kind of a fly in the wall, or is there is there stuff you would be really keen to ask or talk about? Um, I would definitely be one to just absorb yeah. the 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 gravitas mm -hmm. and the viewpoints and the love in the world in the room, and to be able to ask powerful questions. Um, you know, I, that would be one of those co conversations or one of those dinners where I come with like notes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that I don't, you know, get so far in awe that I forget what I'm doing yeah, yeah. <laughs> and forget to ask the questions. The, the, so. the, the squad and the Obamas, particularly Barack Obama, but, uh, because obviously he's more on the political side, but just to have, that's a conversation I don't think we've ever seen right because they came into politics mm -hmm. obviously um i think 2016 is right so yeah. so they never really got to interact but uh obama's always had this kind of like you know this is a big ship and it, it takes a lot of perspectives to, to move the ship and he's not one to really go so far on out on a limb on really many issues and so to see a conversation mm -hmm. between you know the squad and obama uh, on on several issues i think would be fascinating Oh yeah, yeah for yeah, sure. Yeah, I would definitely see that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, last question. Uh, besides the circle of life, what do you know for sure? I would say that there's hope in all of it, and um, that goes with my daughter, Hope, <laughs> and the word hope. So no matter what what piece of life you're in, what stage your life you're in, even if it's the hardest times and the darkest times, there's always, there's always hope, whether you're feeling the absence of it or the presence of it. That's beautiful. That's, uh, that's, that's Thank very you. nice. Uh, hmm. Thank you, Kelsey, for, for the conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. I, I learned a lot, but it also, like I said, um, near the start, just having, again, a safe space, a safe environment to, to talk about some, some things I think that would normally, I would say are sensitive, uh, for, for many people, but even for myself, cause I've never had this kind of conversation. Thank you for that. And thank you for reaching out and, and willing to have this 
we'll need to have this discussion. We'll put all of Kelsey's information in our show notes uh, where you can reach her, how to find from the green desk. Please buy her book, support the 50 State, 50 State Challenge. And just, yeah, again, appreciate you, appreciate your time and appreciate the work that you do. It's I can't imagine, we didn't really get into this, but the uh, you have all that nonprofit experience, but just to, it's just like any entrepreneur to, to start something is incredibly admirable, but especially in the not-for-profit world where you're you're almost at the whims of so many other people to get you going or not get you going, but at least to keep you afloat, right? Just financially and yeah. everything uh, is, I can imagine, a great ordeal and a great challenge and you're doing it from such a wonderful place. It's just uh, brilliant. So, so thank you for all the work that you're doing and hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I had today. I did. I loved it. So thank you so much for having me and for holding this space so that we could have this conversation. All right. Thanks everyone. See you guys next time. Bye.